Hello and welcome to the Miko Bits show and I'm your host Miko Bits. Today uh, I have Ryan from Delphi Digital and we're here to talk about uh, basically in-game economics and play to earn. Uh, you know, as you all probably know that most of the hardcore gamer segment have basically taken a bit of a cold shoulder to this new entrant in the gaming sphere. So, you know, we're seeing the rise of play to earn, but we're also seeing a little bit of a uh, hard reception. So uh, one of the really interesting topics we'll get into is sort of, um, you know, really kind of trying to help everyone reason about the economics and sustainability of play to earn gaming. So with that in mind, uh, here's Ryan. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the Miko Bits show. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Miko. And really excited to kind of jam here and speak about, I think one, you know, play to earn, play and earn, the sustainability of such systems. And also, I think, alluding to your earlier point, uh, talking about how these AAA game studios are sort of coming in and kind of the challenges they might face and, you know, how they might begin to navigate these challenges in developing some awesome uh, play-to-earn and play-and-earn games, right? So I think, uh, you know, maybe what's best to sort of set the context here would be kind of speaking a bit more about play-to-earn and play-and-earn and, you know, the definitions behind them, right? So I think um, with play-to-earn, and play and earn just as a group i would say the most interesting thing about them from uh you know from a game designer's perspective or a game economy designer's perspective or developer's perspective is that now you can kind of build a game with a different kind of monetization model from in the previous ones in the past so if you think on the history of game monetization models you know way back we had you know coin operated arcade machines in 1971 and you could like put in 50 cents or like a quarter and then you get like a bunch of gameplay right and then that led to a certain type of game being built like really skill-based games and you end up with um you're like losing uh losing if you're not that good but it's also like spectatorial and it's like a high score and it's a competitive element so those are kind of games that are being built and then you like, go to premium games so like box games right and you know these games would you know be a 50 or 60 us dollars and they would you know ship them out to your home or you stop by game store and pick them on the way home and ask mom like hey can i get the game please you know that's the that's that's one type of game and it led to this like big budget like pre-production production and then QA process type of games, right? And then that's kind of a lot of the core game industry, triple A game industry that's uh, in operating right now. Um, companies like Activision, Blizzard, um, companies like Ubisoft as well, right? Then you have this sort of paradigm shift again with like free to play. And because you have monetization, that uh, you have this sort of metric or data driven type of game development, right? Where it's kind of focusing on finding the fun, but that fun is found through data. Right, so it's well. If players are kind of staying around after the first day, that's called day one retention. If players are staying around after the seventh day, that's day seven. And you know, what's the cost of imp impressing them, so to speak? So CPI, right? Um, and then if uh, you know all the numbers check out, then we fund the game and build that game. And that's kind of hyper casual, right? And this really extreme of free to play, um, leaning towards ad monetization. So you kind of show ads in order to for the business model to work, right? And then you have like on the other end microtransaction monetization where they're kind of selling in-app purchases and you know progression and cosmetics and the like so you have this kind of across the board uh, but that's kind of the spectrum of monetization and free-to-play 
So I think what like play to earn and play and then really offer is a kind of um, a break from all these kind of previous monetization models. And you know, with that, I think a new kind of game can get developed, like kind of vision-based games, right? So games that are you know where players in the community can kind of rally around a vision and buy into that vision, and then you have this kind of user acquisition engine powered by play to earn and tokens. I think that's like a really fascinating kind of paradigm shift um, for for games because now you know anyone can kind of spin up a game even if they don't have that sort of traditional experience and that's kind of a double-edged sword right because you're going to end up with a lot of projects that you know people uh, who are not necessarily qualified might go up and start it anyway right so it might be more marketing than the game development itself but the latter half you get kind of these games that will never would never have gotten like sort of traditional funding just because like they don't have experience with metrics and all these you know different parts of building free to play games and now they you know can be funded by people who love the vision so i think the analog here is like stardew valley would never have been built if you know they were pitching a free to play game studio a free to play so, publisher so, yeah. so so one thing one thing i think has been really amazing is this kind of extremely toxic reaction from hardcore gaming, right? So uh, if you look at the Ghost Recon NFT launch of Ubisoft, I think they sold 15 NFTs, you know, like, it, and and the, the kind of, the thing that's more interesting is the kind of qualitative, right? Which is, if you read what people are saying, like, there's just total vitriol, right? So, so my hot take is this. My hot take is, is that, that gaming has always been business- versus art right and in a sense like the thing that's happened is is when you look at like ready player one right the evil guy is the money guy right like he's evil right and the good guys are like the art guys right so it's sort of like art good money business bad right so in a sense like in the history of gaming any whiff of money is basically tied to some evil controller who's here to like ruin everything because he's greedy Right. Like that's generally he. Right. It's usually a he. Right. So like, you know, so these overlords are kind of like here to ruin everything with money. Right. So that that I think that's my hot take. But like, you know, what what's your thoughts around like this extremely negative re reception? You know, because I, I think that's that was, you know, some some people are pretty surprised. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think um, on two points here, but I would like to touch on the really player one, like business versus art point and yeah i think um in metaverses i cover like level four i cover about funding of games and i talk about free guy right so free guy is you know the latest kind of gamer centered movie like 2021 and you know there is kind of this core conflict of like data driven games that are being built and this is one guy who's like an evil controller is like i don't care man you know i'm gonna release the sequel whatever you know, delete all the old characters. And then there's the other one who's this. very much like, I'm going to build this like natural world. You know, it's like free, it's not free city. It's going to be like, you know, life itself or something like that. Right. And I think yeah. I get a sense that like, you know, this sort of monetary incentive, you know, you kind of get this like squeeze uh, of the players in a sense. And, you know, I think that kind of is the natural progression from this idea of obsession around metrics, like LTV of player versus like customer acquisition costs. So I think, you know, when we kind of begin to frame the ways in which relationship, the relationship in which gamers have with uh, developers, 
as that equation, I think like that that itself becomes like a really a driving force. And I think one way to understand it, it sort of to, to even go back to step back a bit from this is like to think about the business of games, right? So, you know, I don't think business and making games is necessarily bad because you kind of have to fund the games, right? So I think two things yeah. uh, with regards to sustainability. One is you have to fund the games in the initial development, right? Or at least initial kind of start so that, you know, start founders can go out or companies can go out and actually start those projects so we can play those games because we, we just want to play the games, right? And yeah. the second is um, to sustain the development of the game um, in proportion with its user base growing, right? And so how do you kind of sustain the development of the game, right? And that, you know, ties back on to the monetization models that we kind of employ, right? So if, you know, a company doesn't have enough revenue to continue developing the game, then they just necessarily have to shut down the, the game and the operations of the game because it wouldn't make sense for them to continue doing updates, live services, right, um, in sort of our tradition, in our current sort of game environment. And yeah, like and the biggest example here is like Club Penguin, which had over 200 million users after being acquired by Disney, right? Which is yeah. one of the biggest entertainment companies of all time. But, you know, they had to shut down operations just because they couldn't justify the server spend and the developer spend. So so they had to shut down in, I think, 2017. So I'm, I need to fact check that one. But the idea is that, you know, sustainability of the games is just as important as funding it, just as important as the player base. And I think it's win-win-win if, like, the, you know, game can continue to, to run. Right? And you can kind of develop monetization models where it's naturally running accordingly. So I think just touching upon that point. Um, as for like the triple A, the toxic reaction from like these hardcore gaming, um, yeah. I think you kind of like split it into the developers themselves, themselves, right? As well as like the players, right? The player base. So I think, you know, if you kind of analyze like the reaction from developers, there's kind of initial hesitancy, right? But then again, like, the way you can, they, I think, had, you know, to, to, to have them try to understand it always comes back again to the lens of like, well, how is this going to serve my, you know, um, quarterly report? How is this going to serve my LTV, you yeah, know, CAC yeah, ratio? Yeah. And I think with kind of play to earn and play and earn, it is, you know, there's not much historical data to go off beyond sort of the breakout of Axie, right? So, I've, but I, I will say that, like, if, you know, you sort of spend more time like diving into it and really like, sort of try to figure out different business models that operate on similar principles of like, you know, giving control to the player in certain regards, right? Like sort of allowing upside to be shared with, you know, different the player base. And um, I think it is a whole, allowing like sort of community buy-in. It is, and you know, influence of development. I think it's like a whole suite of things, right? And I think the challenge with some of these uh, initial experiments is that um, one is difficult, and this is on the developer side, one is difficult to get such projects greenlit at least in its entirety, right? It's because of, you know, in institutional inertia and, you know, you having to get consensus across many different nodes. I think even the blockchain folks that like, kind of understand this one. So I think that, that in itself is going to be um, a big challenge for these games because now they can't lean in fully into the promise of, you know, play to earn, play and earn blockchain, right? And they kind of have to have this hybridized approach where it's like, well, I'm still selling you, I'm selling you the, the game, but I'm also selling you the NFTs, but the oh. NFTs don't do much in the game. And you can kind of trade them, but that's about it, you know. And that, yeah, I, and, I, I, and, yeah, go ahead. And the and from the part of the gamers, then there's this kind of reaction where it's like, well, these NFTs are not actually doing anything in the game, like not very much anyway. It doesn't change my gameplay qualitatively, right? So, you know, 
isn't this just the way for you to, ex to experiment extracting more value and uh, LTV is so called from me, right? So I think that's the kind of like relationship that's kind of unfolded with some of the, you know, more controversial NFT launches. And of course, like small, more issues such as like, you know, um, environmental destruction and such, like these kind of questions come up, I think related to blockchain and crypto. And yeah, it's not necessarily always correct, but I think like just the common consensus around some, you know, some folks in the community, like in the gamer community, that seems to be like what a lot of gamers have like rested to and defaulted to as an, an argument against crypto, which, you know, we can kind of sit here and talk about like proof of stake and talk about like proof of history and all these kind of other different ways that, you know, trees aren't being burnt. But I think, you know, that ship has sailed, so to speak. And my, my thought is that, you know, one is education. One, one approach is education. And the second approach is like, you know, knowing that a different user base will come around, right, for these kind of games. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just just to kind of like put a pin in it, you know, I think all I have to say on kind of Ethereum electricity consumption is that it'll drop by at least 99.3% when we hit the merge, right? So I, I think proof of stake is going to help, right? So, but, you know, I don't want to deep dive there, uh, you know. Uh, I definitely legitimize concern for the planet, but I think it has to be founded in like reality. And, you know, if, if Ethereum succeeds, then it should be not a problem. So, uh, but what I wanted to get to though is sustainability, right? Because when you look at Axie, they're incentivizing their player base, which is lovely, right? But like, what's the economic input, right? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, do the players themselves create economic value other than these kind of mild network effects of having other people to play against or, you know, the, these kind of very lightweight things, right? Because in a sense, like, you know, when we look at like a sustainable economy, you know, it, it can't really take the form of a giveaway, you know, it, it has to kind of, and it, in a way, like, ideally, it doesn't like require constant adding of new players, you know, that are buying game pieces, right? That's that, you know, so that that feels more like a Ponzi-nomic. So how, how do you see, you know, what are the factors that could increase the sustainability uh, other than just kind of perpetually selling more and more NFTs? That's a good question. So I think when we talk about sustainability, um, we can default to the frame of like, you know, games as products, right? So when we think of games as products, uh, we begin to think, okay, there's this sort of search and, you know, iteration towards product market fit, right? And once it's product market fit, it means it's kind of a willing buyer for whatever a seller might, you know, want to sell, right? And in this case, uh, in play to earn and in Axie, the seller is not the game developer per se. You kind of end up, the game developer ends up being kind of an economy designer Right, providing ways for players to earn within the game, to, to generate new resources within the game, but they don't take an active hand in selling those resources to other players, quite unlike like free-to-play games, for example, like microtransaction model, right? And that itself is really interesting. However, the problem doesn't go away um, where you still have to kind of build something that players want, right? Or players are willing to spend on. It's just as of current players, you know, the sort of, tendency towards for player behavior is to sort of tend towards breeding these axes in order to sell to new players, right? Or sell to new entrants, right? Hold and on. that that can change, right? And I think one, of course, the, is 
the the, the thing to focus on here is like um, for the consumers or the players who pay for the for these uh, you know outputs that are you know uh, generated by the sellers so to speak or the grinders so to speak right they you have to kind of make it even an even more attractive value proposition for them so i think one kind of way um, to sort of make XC a bit more sustainable is to have a progression-based elder game, right? So yeah. how do you kind of um, have a different game from the the one we currently have? And, you know, we do have an elder game in XC. It's called Breeding, right? So this is kind of Breeding minigame. And this is some management sim, right, that you kind of engage in. But, like, can you, like I think you have to kind of go beyond that as well and allow, like, for example, comp- competitive elements like esports to come into the picture, Right, you have to kind of introduce new sinks and you know consumable-based economy, right? Where like you know these grinders can now create consumables uh, for for like these uh you know how, how do you say whales I suppose to yeah, yeah, yeah. begin. So you're talking spending. about you're talking about like a resource gathering. So you're talking about things like gold mining, wow gold mining, right? You're talking about things like power leveling, right? So these are these are kind of tried and true. Uh, yeah, in the wild precisely. Ecosystem. Yeah, precisely. Like you know, um, farming gold, like power leveling characters. I think power leveling characters is a really interesting one in, in, in WoW, for example. But like the one I find like the most wholesome. So I like to think of WoW as like play to earn, right? So it's like, you know, there's the, if, if you're a gold farmer, it's play to earn, right? Because now yep. you're just like showing up and you're like kind of collecting as much gold as possible and other players are like, whoa, like, come on, man. Like you're, you're kind of like stealing all my, I don't know, frost, frost, I can't remember the name of the, the, the herbs now, right? But uh, the idea, that's, that's the idea, right? And then um, with, like, play and earn, I think, you know, Diablo 2's economy, interestingly enough, is very, very much a play and earn economy. Because we're talking about power leveling and you know, sort of farming items. You actually end up with very, I think, at least in Diablo 2 Resurrected, which, you know, I'm super excited to play, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. the new ladder for. But you end up with players who are kind of organically providing services for each other and this is kind of like constructed by the game economy designers right where it's like well i need a smiter a paladin who's trained in smite um, and has smite gear to defeat my ubers so i can get like this you know rare torch that buffs my character right i need um you know magic finders within the game to find all the shakos and the runes so that you know i can buy them and create my pvp character right which is another elder game I need uh, yep. people to farm like the charms and all that so I can pay them for it. And there's like, you know, c- there's cash rich players and there's sort of time poor players. And the time poor players are happy to kind of, you know, engage in that, um, in that, uh, how do you call it, exchange. So even power leveling, they call it G rushing. So you're rushing players is a service, right? And the interesting thing about Diablo 2 is like, unlike a lot of the other games um, out there with kind of in-game economy, it does have exposure, at least to a limited degree, to kind of real-world economic value, right? So, examples of some um, sites that, you know, like, sites that some players engage with, it, which represents some of exposure to the open economy, be like D2JSP, right? So, on D2JSP, there's a currency called Forum Gold, which you can kind of buy into Right, with real world cash, and then you can kind of trade, use that as a medium of trade, and it has been kind of the de facto medium of a medium of exchange for Diablo 2 players who want to kind of not do barter, right, or not like trade using runes necessarily. So there's two economies. One one is the rune economy, and and then there's the kind of value for runes that that's denominated in forum gold, right? 
and people pay for services and all of that using forum gold. And you can find that in forum gold, like some of the services can be go up to, you know, a few hundred dollars just to get, you know, a rare armor. And this is a game that's like lasted nine to 10 years, for example, right? So sure. that's something that like is really interesting to kind of deep dive into and think like, well, what, what can we learn from a game like this that has like, so stood the, the test of time and, and I kept players interested in coming back. Yeah, I like I like what you're saying, right? The thing that I think is interesting, though, is that we're really talking about kind of nominal value accretion, and you're really talking about kind of the arbitrage of time value, right? So in a sense, like, if you go back to kind of Chinese World of Warcraft gold, you know, I used to call it Chinese because, like, when you look at IGN or you look at these old gold mining companies, a lot of them were based in China, you know, basically based on this time arbitrage uh, construct, right? But, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to poke here is, you know, like, uh, you know, we're, we're obviously both, uh, you know, invested in, in YGG, uh, you know, and one of the things that I think is super interesting when you look at the YGG proposition is that they're playing the economic metagame, like the post-Axie, right? Obviously, the management sim is part of the game, but, like, it goes far beyond that, right? So, for me, like, like uh, one, one example, a question is, like, how many people work at Delphi Digital? Well, I've gotten a lot of emails right. saying, welcome your new colleague. So, I think now there's about... 80 perhaps across the three divisions of Delphi. Yeah. Research yeah, yeah. labs, ventures. Yeah. yeah. So there's about 80 people that work there. Right. But like, <clears throat> what if you looked at YGG's 10,000 scholars? What if you looked at YGG as a hedge fund with 10,000 analysts? Right. So, you know, if you looked at it from that lens, right, then what's happened is that YGG has actually converted the play time of their player base into an analytic resource for their investment. So like, if you think about it from that lens, like that's exponential value extraction, as opposed to kind of this very nominal, like uh, this person's time playing World of Warcraft is like slightly less valuable than this other player, you know? So, so I think, you know, if you look at it from that lens, like that's a really interesting kind of end game value proposition. Wow. That's <laughs> Delphi with 80, YGG with 10,000. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad we are investors in YGG then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... yeah. Well, you guys were uh, really scared. seminal in creating YGG. So, like, you know, you guys are part of the empire. <laughs> yeah, but wow, that's that's a really, really interesting frame. Um, just stop thinking about the player base kind of going out and you know, finding these play-to-earn games that make sense and, you know, kind of have being the you know, empowering these players to kind of step up and like say like, well, you know, I want to lead the sub dial for this game in particular. I think this is an interesting investment because X, Y, Z. They can kind of bring it up the the hierarchy, so to speak, and they can spend oh, time, okay. you know, doing the the research. And if it's a good investment, if it's a good investment of time and YGG resources, then then they go ahead and do it, right? I think. Well, like, and I think. Yeah. I think the shocker the shocker is this, right? Which is that gamers are obsessively gamers, right? And so, for example, like, if you go into a new fantasy role-playing game, right, and you're kind of equipping your army, the YGG army, right, like, you can say, well, should we be getting, like, Flaming Sword, or should we be getting Blue Crystal Sword, or should we be getting Iron Sword? Like, what, you know, what should we get for this army, right? So, like, the player base will tell you what to get, you know, even if they don't think of themselves as like, oh, I'm a, like, a, I'm an analyst, like, I, you know, I understand economics, like, I, you know, I got my degree from like a fancy from Wharton, you know, it's like, no, like, they're like, 
get the blue crystal sword. Like the the bang for buck is the best, right? Like they're they're like the flaming sword is too expensive. The iron sword doesn't do enough damage. Get the blue crystal sword, right? So like the player is gonna know, right? So like you know this is an asset that ties to future cash flows. Like this is this is, you know that's all analytics, right? So like you know I think that's the kind of and obviously like with a really sophisticated game, like if you look at like World of Warcraft auction house, like there's just insane examples of like different kinds of arbitrage loops and, you know, things to buy and things not to buy and timings to buy. And, you know, so it, it gets really sophisticated and like people are good at playing that, like just normie people, I think. Normie game devs. Yeah. They don't need a, you know, they don't need an expert background in economics or anything to, you know, kind of dominate the wild auction house. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think... Orange I game. think uh, Vital- Vitalik uh, once said on a he was on a uh, we were on a boat and he said he said everything I ever needed to know about pump and dump I learned selling nether weave on the auction house right so like you know it's it, the the economics are there right like it's all it's all there for the players. The nether weave is a tough market, man. Yeah, yes. it's a bit too uh, it's a bit too much. There's too many sources for Nether Weave, but yeah, no, definitely. But it's wow. but it's but it's pump and dumpable, right? Like you can definitely kind of like get a gang together and like just totally yeah. ruin that market. <laughs> OPEC OPEC vibes, yeah. Yes, cartel. <laughs> yeah. Nether Weave Cartel is like a great uh, guild name. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that up. One up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a dark day when YGG starts doing that, right? When they start like, you know, pumping and dumping, you know, in-game items on auction houses like that. You know, hopefully they'll keep just adding value and bringing users. You know, instead of, instead of playing tricks. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like, uh, I think you can think you can kind of encourage them to write popular. Like, well, you know, there's these other you know teams that might be working on this. Let's see if. Yeah, let's see if YG can kind of break up that monopoly, so to speak. Yeah, I like I, think... I like Netherweave Cartel now, though. We we have to make that. That's <laughs> that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, like the little icon is like the the DAO icon, and it's like, well, Netherweave is seventeen gold now. WID. <laughs> okay. I love it. Yeah, yeah I know. it's exciting. So so I guess so, so sustainability is super essential, right? But to me, like what I would love to kind of have is like, you know, you've been working on really exciting projects. Like I'd love to kind of get your view on like mechanisms. Like, you know, have have you what are the kind of up and coming hot mechanisms? Like how you know, how how do you see kind of the state of the art economic design? Yeah, no. Um this is a great question and I think on mechanism side of things, like one kind of really interesting mechanism to dive into is like value accrual, right? So how how does value accrue to, you know, uh, supporters of the token and supporters of NFTs as well, right? So how do kind of NFTs, who are, which are used in the game, uh, accrue value, both time value and, you know, sort of financial value, so to speak, right? So economic value within the game system, right? And I think, I think uh, with, for example, Crypto Raiders, like there's an excellent kind of like uh, flywheel tokenomics there, right? And I, I can kind of break that down and how that how that how that works, right? So with with there's two kind of currencies in the game, and there's an NFT, right? Um, the NFT is the Raider, right? The Raider character, and I can go down lay. Uh, th- go down the layers into like the other NFTs that also been released, like such such as the mobs, such as the mounts. But let's keep it itself like the the you know base layer for now. So I think yep. there's really really sort of interesting mechanism 
you know, experimentation going on with the Raiders. And I think that's kind of enabled by their, you know, HTML5 games development, uh, their choice to build on Phaser, and their really, like, sort of quick iteration cycle, right? Um, so with, with uh, Crypto Raiders, the core gameplay loop is very similar to something like Diablo, right? Where you kind of have a character, you send them into dungeons, and you kind of fight in a dungeon, and then you get loot, and you get levels. And that yep. makes you stronger for the next dungeons, right? There's a PvP kind of elder game as well, which is where the play to earn actually is turned on. So the play to earn happens in the PvP, where you kind of earn if you're the top of the tournament, and that kind of already creates an incentive. But it's a very sort of obfuscated incentive, right? It's not like well, show up and get you know earned. It's show up, you know, put in the work, like study the game, the the meta game, develop a character, and then you know you get to sort of engage in the earning, right? So I think that's kind of the very sustainable way to kind of approach play to earn as well, and something we're seeing um, in crypto raiders. So the most interesting kind of value accrual mechanism there, I think is like how value accrues to raider, right? So when there's a fixed supply of raider, which is kind of the governance token here, and there's 100 million of these tokens that have been released, right? And when you stake this raider, you get exposure to in-game spend, right? Um, because yeah. whenever Aurum is spent in-game, Aurum is kind of the, your in-game currency, whenever it's spent in-game, a percentage actually flows back to Raider, Raider stakers. And the other 50% goes to the treasury for reuse in the economy. And so what, what we see is like the, you know, game economist on that team will actually spend time, you know, for example, trying to balance the, the price of Aurum through like open market operations to ensure that the game, you know, remains affordable for the for the players, right? And and entry prices remain affordable for players. And then you get to make kind of economic uh, policy decisions around when new raiders are being emitted, new characters are being emitted, right? Into the yeah, game. Yeah, that's uh, uh, this central recruitment. banking. Yes, basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. And I think like the interesting thing is that like, you kind of have this Keynesian approach, you know, this kind of like MMT approach towards like developing, you know, a game and a game economy and it's flourishing in a sense because, you know, what, what you want is kind of like the velocity of items and characters and, you know, without kind of knowledge and information of like the game system, then you won't be able to kind of, uh, you won't be able to kind of um, design a system that is able to achieve your objective, right? So I think that's what was really interesting about Crypto Raider so far. It's kind of scaled very, very well. I think it's just because of being very careful about like when Aurum enters into the economy and then like the you know central banking, right, having the discretion to release Aurum and such. Yeah. So yeah, the value accruals I think is, is fantastic, right, for for Raider stakers, right? And I, I, there's a lot of game projects out there which I will not be able to say that for, even though they have kind of an excellent game, like, you know, the, the value accrual on the token or the NFTs um, have sort of, you know, leave much to be desired, right? So that's kind of one, one way to, yeah, yeah there's yeah, one, yeah. one mechanism I'm excited about. I think I, I really appreciate what you're drawing attention to, right? Because my hyper primitive model of core loop, right? So when I think about core loop, I really think about four needles, right? And the, the four needles are actually really, really simple, right? Which is uh, inflation, deflation. 
right? So that's actually, I consider that to be two different, I mean, it's, it's really one needle, right? So there's really only two needles then, right? Inflation deflation is really central banking, right? And that's basically like, what's the game buying and selling, right? So is the game buy, net buying or is the game net selling? Those are the two options, right? So, and this applies to NFTs too, right? So in the sense of like, you know, it, it has to do with minting, right? So, you know, if you're, so, so, you know, I think people describe this in game economies as like mudflation, right? Where, you know, you kind of buy the expansion pack, right? Your legendary orange gun is now like less good than the stupid wood bow that you got in the green zone, you know? So you're sort of like, wow, like that's so bad, right? Like it's just this trash inflation, right? So like, you know, that feels very abusive, right? But the, at the end of the day, you know, to me, like, it's basically what's the game doing by sell pressure, right? That's called inflation deflation, right? Central bank. And then the other one is what is everybody else doing, <laughs> right? So that's basically the other buy sell pressure, you know, and obviously there may be, you know, complicated games have like really complicated roles. So there's many different roles. There's like crafters minting new items. And so then it becomes kind of really hard to kind of conceive. But like, you know, from a modeling perspective, it's really buy sell inflate, deflate, the end, right? So, you know, so I think, I think, you know, if you start with a viable core loop and you add more mechanics with patch and potentially roll back, you know, if you see an exploit, you should like, you know, if your needles are moving the opposite direction than you expected, then you're like, this patch isn't working, like get it out, get it out, you know? And if you have some kind of custodial centralization in your coin, you can even kind of like, you know, the goal isn't to have to roll back the chain, right? The goal is to just roll back the function so that if someone starts kind of like printing money, like you can kind of just stop, you can say, okay, like you, you can keep the money you printed while this patch was going, but we stopped the patch, right? So the game rules don't support you doing that anymore, you know? So, but I feel like, you know, if you kind of support a paradigm like that, then like, to me, all that happens with central banking is that the bank looks at the token and says, wow, it's cheap and buys it, right? Or the token says, whoa, the token's too expensive and starts selling it, right? So if the, if the bank is doing that, it's always buying low and selling high, right? So if it does that forever, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger forever, right? So, like, that's kind of the dream. Yes, precisely. Actually, precisely, yeah. You kind of kind of give away all the trade secrets right there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the alpha. That's the alpha, sir. So. <laughs> that's good. That's but yeah, good. no, I, I think that was, a, that was kind of excellent breakdown of, like, you know, how these kind of games can be sustainable, right? And I think, uh, you know, what that now kind of reduces to the challenge that reduces to is because you know, there's kind of interesting tension because now you kind of have to trust the game developers to sort of deliver the best experience you kind of got to think about like their incentives and their incentive alignment right the the token right so they own like some percentage in the token right um and i think because they own the token then that you know value only unlocks so you, you don't have to trust that they get the how do you say you don't have to have the trust assumption that they, you know, every single thing has to be kind of trustless, right? But you, you could have the trust assumption that like, well, you know, they, they wouldn't want to shoot themselves in the foot by, you know, optimizing for short term over long term, right? And then all the intangibles around like, well, I'm making a good project, you know, with a transparent roadmap, so on, so on, so on. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think like, uh, it actually reduces to a problem of trust in their custodianship and their ability to execute right in in some of these like play to earn games that have more sophisticated economies it's like how do you now um how do you now like uh decide whether a game is, is one you want to support well it's just whether you trust the developers you know to continue to execute on this monetary policy to continue to execute on you know keeping the game balanced and fair um 
both on the economy side and on the sort of gameplay side of things, right? And yeah, then from there you just roll on and you know print I think, your tokens. I think I think at some level you are describing life, like you're just describing what I call <laughs> life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What you're describing though, right, is that people go into a game, right? A game is just a rule based environment. Right. So, you know, so they go into that environment expected to be treated fairly. Right. That's what they expect. Right. Because in a way, like life treat the, the thing that's so funny about being treated fairly. Right. Is that it's all fairly according to the rules. Right. They want to be treated fairly according to the rules. Right. So the thing that's so ironic to me is is 100 million users are playing League of Legends. Right. And the thing that's so funny is that the rules of the game actually make the game about unfairness. Right. Like like League of Legends <laughs> is a game that's about unfairness. Right. Like, you know, like like you're in your lane. Enemy jungler shows up. They're like 2v1ing you. You know, they're kind of diving into the tower. <laughs> right. And your jungler doesn't come. Right. Your jungler's like, uh, sorry, dude, don't want to feed. You know, so like the game is just painfully it's it's about unfairness. Right. Like so in a way, like it's so funny because people still love hate that game like they love hate it right mm -hmm. because in a way like they expect to be treated fairly you know and in a sense all you're saying is you're saying you know if if people feel unfairly treated by a system that's when they leave right so so in essence like it's so interesting right because obviously there's some weird moment where people can be like uh the jig is up like don't, you know developers are dumping all their tokens you know so there's some there may be a toxic moment where the whole thing falls apart right but but you know in a perfect world like these systems just go forever yeah these systems go forever and you end up having you know more and more community kind of get excited about what's being worked on and then that's when the soft play and earn you know set of things where you kind of have transaction um tra secondary market transactions end up uh, feeding you know the the game and the development of the game and the, the salaries for developers as well as like you know play to earn rewards right i think that's kind of like the the perfect world right and yes there can be a moment where like soft trust is lost but the trust isn't lost when for example like a smart contract exploit is discovered or like you know when gas fees go up you know it, it goes it, it, it disappears when you begin to make the rules of the game about profiting the developers in the short term over like, you know, um, ensuring the fun of players in the, in the long term. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and the, the other point I wanted to make is, is that in a sense, the thing that's kind of funny to me is it feels like we can't overly dial on decentralization as the utopia. Right. Because one of the things that's so interesting is just look at patch day Right. You can either study patch day on Axie Infinity, right? Just talk to some managers on patch day, right? Or the day after, right? Or or you can look at something like patch day in League of Legends and go read the forums, right? Like, can you imagine voting for which champs yeah. are being nerfed? Or can you imagine how toxic that would be? Like, especially if yeah. people were paying to win on governance. Like, let okay, I'm gonna do like a flash loan for governance and I'm going to vote for buffs on my champ and I'm just going to destroy everyone. It's just like, it would just get so ugly. Like, you know, so in a way I 
feel like game design has to still be arbited by someone who everybody loves. Like it has to be like, there has to be this kind of wise, benevolent dictator who's like, that's just distasteful. Like there has to be someone who's like, no, we're not doing that. You know, like just very, someone who's really fair and really like has good taste, I think, you know? And I think putting something like that into like, you know, decentralized governance is just, it's a recipe for disaster, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. It's this kind of interesting tension there because it's like, well, we agree now that game design is not a decentralizable activity, at least not yet, right? And, you know, there are spaces for that decentralization and for value to kind of flow back to players, right? And, you know, Crypto Raiders has done this, for example, with music, right? So it says, well, our, we're not experts in music, but we believe the community can come up with music. So if the, mu- the community can come up with music, every player can kind of vote on the tracks they want to see in the dungeons. And now I think Crypto Raiders has some pretty fire soundtracks, right? So they've auctioned us off the you know music as NFTs, right? Um, whenever they they play uh, they play in a game, they get you know uh, a percentage of the spend in game, right? Wow. Eventually, right? So that's kind of like the the target that the developers have set for various aspects of the game to be decentralized. But you know, game balance, nah, nah, no. Nah. That's, that's that's still so... in the in the purview. That's so good and smart though, right? Because like, it's so amazing how like your entire world is kind of colored by the music, right? Like, like you know, in League of Legends, there's just that crazy background music on Sun- Summoner's Rift that like plays over and over and over. And it's just kind of like, oh my God, like can, can we like change it up once? You know, like it's, that, <laughs> it's amazing what you're saying, right? Because, you know, that kind of contest is such a beautiful way to support kind of a community content and kind of an evergreen IP franchise, like just to really keep things alive. Cause can you, can you imagine how excited you'd be if you're like music started playing for all the players? Like, you know, like it's just such a great honor. Like, you know, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's such a great creator of like economic value. Right. So the player base is now contributing and building your world. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think like that's, that's kind of the magic of it. And that's kind of, you know, an early taste, right? So to speak, of, of the mechanisms and it's kind of achieved because they really just released the bare bones and are continuing to build on and iterate, right? Release new dungeons, build new content, and then as well as expand kind of, you know, horizontally, like the different kind of product offerings, so to speak, and sort of going back to games as products, right? But um, yeah, I think that all kind of like ties into this, you know, vision of like, well, this game that is being built with the community. And I think that's kind of special, yeah. So... Yeah, I think We've... that this stuff gets super complicated to sort out, right? Because in a sense, like the community, like I love this kind of nascent early beginnings with little frameworks like music and collaboration, you know, because we totally agree that like the core updates, you know, to the game rule engine is sort of like that is not like decentralized, right? So so because of that, the thing that that we have to negotiate as a as a community is sort of like what are the functions where the community kind of participates and what aren't, you know. I think, you know, at some point things like level designs, you know, like for sure that's going to happen, right? Like even yeah. even in a closed ecosystem like Nintendo Switch, there's that kind of Mario Maker game where like all these crazy people made these levels and there's some pretty fun levels in there. So like, you know, I, I think level design could happen, you know, there's definitely like, cause in a way, like with level design, 
players can become like a dungeon master, right? So like, you know, that people could put a lot into that if they if they really wanted to. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And they could become a dungeon master. They could, uh, you know, add utility to any of the NFTs in the game. Uh, and I think one, one thing I've been kind of experimenting with or thinking about is like, well, you know, with the mobs NFTs, right? Is there a way to kind of create like a game that centers around sort of possessing and creating new NFTs from these mob NFTs? So you have these mobs NFTs, right? And then now you want to sort of add value to that game and then it's like upside within that, right? You can build like a marketplace for them and then now you're sort of like tapping upon the player base of, of crypto readers. At the same time, you're kind of extending the gameplay and then you kind of get rewarded for that without having to work on all of the art and so on, right? To, to develop the mobs and such, right? So what, and you know, of course, like building up the community, you just kind of build for their preference. And now you get a sort of percentage, you know, through the marketplace that you build that, you know, supersedes OpenSea. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one, one would be, <laughs> one would be like, um, another would be like, uh, you know, working together with the devs to kind of say like, well, this is an initiative that we're planning to build. Can we get some of the, you know, governance tokens for building this before we go ahead, right? Yeah. Or like commitment for that. And then, then you have like more alignment for, onboarding you know separate kind of divisions as owners right so this kind of like goes back to the principal agent problem right like this idea that like you know well the person who owns the the asset isn't the one who's operating the asset and now it's like well you have this complete alignment um on the side of the, the sort of ugc developers right and uh, i think you know, if you you're, you're at, talking about you're talking about principal agent Yes, principal agent. I thought, I thought you yeah. were saying principal Asians. I was like, oh, the Asians run this now. <laughs> yeah, we, we're, we're pretty principled, yeah, but you know, <laughs> no, principal agent. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. So, like, you know, the thing that I'm kind of pointing at into the future is this kind of like player or gamer centric transmedia, right? So, when you talk about contributions of music or we talk about contributions of level design or you know in a way you're talking about these aligned divisions right so in a sense the thing that becomes amazing is like if there's a DAO that forks off a animated series or if they fork off a movie studio or if they fork, you know because like if they're if they're incentivized by the token you know they're gonna make a shrine they're gonna you know when I talk about gamer centrism like it ha that's what it has to be, right? Like it has to be this very deeply devotional commitment to this universe, right? And in a way, like yes. you know, and and if they abuse the universe, like you know, it's it's so toxic to everyone, right? So like you know, so in a way, yes. like that's that's the genius of you know how how this this kind of infusion and this novel mechanism can be you know perhaps what can happen is you can launch a movie studio and kind of separately capitalize it right so that people who want to see the movie can pay like you know 12 bucks and maybe they'll just you know who knows what will happen right you know ideally they'll have put together the right team you know and it won't be this kind of abuse <laughs> but you know but i think yeah. i think that's the kind of dream right the dream is gamer centric transmedia you know and i think this idea that people can build and create and contribute you know i think in in many different ways you know i think i think that that's going to be sustainable yeah like definite definitely i i i love i love that you know you kind of bring a lot of these metaphors into the picture i remember like you mentioned proof of devotion right that was really interesting like in our last conversation you mentioned like gamer devotion like shrines there's a lot of like these metaphors and you know i think that kind of points to like the sort of totalizing effect 
you know, that that you know, game worlds can have on us, right? Like this ability yeah. for us to, to like for it to suck us into its norms, into its you know like uh, economy, into its understanding, and you know, till today I can still tell you like a siege tank has 150, 150 mineral cost, 100 gas, right? And it does 70 damage, you know, in in siege mode, it. right? It's it's yes. like because you sort yeah. of internalize all of these systems, and you're like, well, four arcane blasts, one arcane missiles. That's my rotation, right? Like that's the kind it. of um. That's the kind of stuff that you know you become sort of attuned to as a gamer, right? And I think like rewarding, almost like providing gamers upside for like being devoted to the game and spending all of the time in the game. It's no longer that kind of weird like, well, you know, I'm playing games, which means I'm away from like what is progression in my real life. It's like, well, games are my real life, right? And I feel yeah. like that right now in my job. Games are my real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and. The thing that's been so genius, too, is I was talking with uh, someone about sort of the birth of the Axie scholarship. And one of the things that's so funny about it, right, is if you think about the word, it's so cool, right? Because if you're like, if you're like, hey, mom and dad, I'm, I'm on the Internet and I'm making money playing games, right? They're like, you're a gambler, like you're no good, you're, you're rotten, right? And it's like, I just got a scholarship, right? And then your parents are like, oh, that's so good. Like, I'm so happy, you know, like my son is the best. <laughs> Base student got a scholarship. So. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's a great word choice, actually. Those yeah. are the those, wow. are, those are the those are the Asian principles. <laughs> <laughs> those are the yeah, those are the Asian principles. Yeah, <laughs> the the Conf, the Confucian scholar, so to speak. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, yeah. it's super. It's super funny. But like, you know, it's to me like what we're describing is absolutely like. You know, it, it, like this is this is really the heart of the the matter. So you know, it, one of the things I'm I'm very super hoping is that, you know, I'm hoping that you know enough, you know, my the, my audience isn't vast, but like there are definitely some good, really good thinkers that kind of watch the show. So I, I'd love to kind of have this be, sort of a stake in the ground around sort of making play and earn sustainable introduction of like AAA introduction of these ma amazing alpha dropping kind of economic principles, you know, and, and, you know, I can, I think finally sort of a bright vision for a gamer centric future, right? Cause you know, if you go back to ready player one, right, the artists win, the business loses, right. And the beating heart of the kind of adventure game is the Atari 2600 with the micro dot where the guy's like, you know, so it's, it's gamer <laughs> culture and gamer history, right. It's super gamer centered. And like, that's how we win the metaverse. So like, you know, I think, I think that's the, the way we should look at this thing. That's amazing. Yeah. To be able to sort of <laughs> tap into the hearts and minds of gamers and sort of respect them and include them in your magic circle. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like, no, because I mean, outro, so. to me, to me, we've used these words like we've used these words like incentives, and we use this word like business versus art. But when it really comes down to it, when we talk about art, we're actually talking about love, right? Like that's what I mean when proof of devotion. I'm talking about shrines. Like I'm talking about kind of this feeling of like this is so awesome, right? Like that awesomeness, right? Because when you look at something like Arcane, ideally. League of Legends players are like, this is awesome, right? And their main just shows up on the screen and walks by or whatever. And they're like, oh my God. Like, you know, they're just getting Jinx excited, main. right? You know, and then when they see something like World of Warcraft movie, they just feel like pissed on from a great height. Like they just feel like this is just such a, you know, it's just bad, right? Yeah, they're just really upset. Down. Yeah, they're just upset by being abused, right? So like, to me, yeah. like, that's 
the dream, right? Is to build this world where people are properly aligned and, you know, these, these IP franchises should get richer and deeper and more, more devoted. So I, I think that's what, that's where we're headed. So, you know, I just want to, yeah. that's a very positive note. So I think it's a good, a good note to close. A game centric future. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, uh, really appreciate uh, you joining the show. Thank you, Miko, for having me. Thank <laughs> you.